0: If you go into the race knowing it's gonna hurt and you're okay with it, you're stronger than most of the people out there. And that, I latched onto that, this idea that if I knew it was gonna hurt and I was like ready for it and I could like revel in it and embrace it and be like, okay, like let's do this type of deal, like with the pain or with the discomfort, that made racing so much easier. Um, and that makes a lot of things in life so much easier.
1: That's Corinne Malcolm. And this is episode 84 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and on this show, I sit down with some of the top athletes, coaches, personalities, and behind-the-scenes people in the sport of running. This week, I had an awesome conversation with Corinne Malcolm. Corinne is a trail and ultra runner for Adidas Terex, and she's also been coaching with CTS since 2016. A self-confessed science nerd with a degree in health and human performance, Corinne was a collegiate cross-country skier and then raced on the U.S. biathlon team before finding her way into trail and ultra running in her early 20s. She's finished in the top 10 at the last two Western States endurance runs, including a 10th place finish at this year's race. She was also fifth at last year's TDS in Chamonix, France, and has shown some pretty damn good range in ultra distance races over the past couple years. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will too, so let's get right to it with Corinne Malcolm. We were just talking a second ago off mic about how you were supposed to be racing in like two and a half weeks, 100K in Japan, which was canceled because of the typhoon that they had there. And you decided not to reschedule another race and do something else for the end of the year. You just called it a season. Was that a difficult decision for you?
0: Yeah, I think it's always a difficult decision to do that. I've had a couple of falls where I feel like I've kind of forced an end of season race. Um, I like. I fought back after Leadville in 2017 to to do the North Face 50 and wasn't really prepared for it. Um, I jumped into a race in India last year after TDS and wasn't really prepared for it. And so the idea of stepping up to something or changing the schedule too much at this point just didn't seem worth like worth it at that point.
1: How much of it is an enthusiasm or a motivation thing to? get yourself excited for something else that you originally weren't planning for?
0: Yeah, I think it's hard to race anything if you're not excited about it. I think it's really hard to race just to check the boxes. And I mean, I tell my athletes that all the time. You know, we got to find races that you're excited about doing. And there was nothing else that fit in the timeline that I had available to me that fit with Thanksgiving coming up, already made travel plans with friends that I was excited about doing.
1: All right, well, I guess... I was recording that, so I guess we can include that <laughs> um, as part of the conversation. But officially, I will welcome you, Corinne Malcolm. Welcome to the Morning Shake-Up Podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So, we just went for a run here in Golden Gate Park, San Francisco. Not your preferred environment, but it's convenient, it's close. You've made good use of it. What has it been like for you living in the city now for over a year and a half?
0: Yeah, so we moved here from Bellingham, Washington about a year and a half ago, and it was a big change. I was really close to a bunch of trailheads in Washington, Um, easy, convenient car drives away. Um, And this is the most urban environment I've ever lived in. And so although I'm very fortunate that I live on Golden Gate Park, basically, and I have that in my backyard, it's a lot different than what makes me happy running. And I've kind of had to balance the convenience of getting certain training in versus taking the time to run somewhere else.
1: Does... Living in the city at all, like quell your excitement for training or because you have such good access to the Marin headlands and trails north of the city and you can get away and get your fix, I guess, um, pretty easily. It tends to work out for you.
0: Yeah, because I can get across the bridge. I've got such a flexible like day to day life with all the different type, like types of work that I do that I, I am fortunate enough that I can jump across the bridge to go for a run um, in the headlands um, or you know, further north on the other side of Tam or even to the East Bay. And that allows me, I think, to stay fresh and to enjoy what I'm doing. And I think if I wasn't in that situation, it'd be a lot harder for me to to train like I am.
1: How about the community here in the Bay Area? There are a number of trail runners in San Francisco who venture over the bridge like you do. And then in Marin, where I live, there's a number of people who call that home and you can go up and meet up with any. Day of the week uh, for a trail run if you want to. How important is having that community close by?
0: Yeah, so part of moving to San Francisco, we moved because my partner's in medical school. And that move was kind of scary because we had such a good community in Washington. But we were also moving to a city where I already knew a bunch of people and that was a huge sell because I knew that I would have friends to go on runs with. Unfortunately, all my friends here are very fast, um, a lot faster than I am. And so sometimes it means uh, I join them on their easy days or I meet them for coffee afterwards or something of that nature as opposed to having maybe the exact same training community I had in Washington.
1: Well, you're very humble because fast is relative. I mean, I would I would argue you're pretty fast in your own right. You've got two top ten Western States finishes, you were top five at T D S in twenty eighteen. You've had other top ultra running results. So you can more than hold your own with many of the folks who live here in the Bay.
0: Yeah, I just I come from a different background. A lot of these other athletes come into it from road from road running, from a competitive collegiate track and cross country background. And I come into the sport from ski racing, and so it's taken a number of years to get f- to get comfortable running fast, because I joke that I'm the slowest professional runner on Strava. Um, I like I hold that title very like dear to my heart. It's a fake title that I have made up, but I, I um, is it in your bio? It should be. It's not, but I I do feel like that's kind. Of, that's how I feel amongst a lot of the runners that that run here in the city and that I race against on a regular basis, like that top ten pack at Western States. Most of those women either have or could have a Olympic qualifying time in the marathon. And I honestly think that I could maybe break three. Like I have, I don't really have a desire to run a road marathon, but I, I don't have the same leg speed as some of those women, but I just bring a different set of skills to trail and ultra running.
1: Do you find yourself getting caught up in the comparison trap frequently?
0: I think it's really easy to. Um, I don't spend a lot of time on Strava stalking people besides to figure out like routes to run, like that's when I spend time on Strava, when I'm in a new place and I need to figure out where I can go. Um, I think it's really easy to to place judgment, either compare yourself to how you ran last year or how you ran several years ago, um, but also to the people that you're lining up against. I joked um, with Eric Sensman after Western States that because he had talked a lot about how he felt like you know he was competing against a different league of runners. And I was like, yeah, Eric, we're like, JV runners who accidentally got entered in the varsity race. And we're just like, we're here to hang on. Um, But it's, I don't know, it's easy to compare, but I feel like I've got a pretty healthy headspace about it. And I know I'm comfortable doing my own thing.
1: And it's not just a professional runner thing. You coach a lot of runners, age groupers, and some who are very competitive in their own right. But I see it myself as a coach and just an observer of the sport. at all levels. Um, and it's easy to do now on Strava, on social media, to look and see what someone else is doing and to compare yourself to them. How do you work with the athletes that you coach to avoid those types of situations?
0: Well, I think a lot of athletes that I work with aren't, aren't even necessarily comparing themselves to, you know, Jim Walmsley or Sage or some other person that they're following on Strava. The biggest thing I see with athletes is is that they're actually comparing themselves to a previous time they ran. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they've taken, I get athletes who have taken three months, six months, a year off of running before I start working with them. And training is hard when you haven't been running for a while. And it's really easy to be like, well, you know, eight minute miles used to feel easy. And right now I can barely run tens or I'm run walking or whatever it might be. I think that's a an easier trap for people to fall into is just comparing yourself against where you think you should be or where you were. Um, And it's just about kind of re like reframing that. There's like a really cheesy quote about comparison being the thief of joy, Mm -hmm. but it's totally true. Like it's really hard to run and be happy about it. If you're constantly worried about if you're running slower than someone else or if you should be running faster than you are.
1: What strategies do you give your athletes and even employ yourself to work through those situations?
0: Um, I've got a number of athletes who, when they start to get really stressed about the numbers or even like turning the, I use training peaks. And if you like have run the prescribed workout duration, it turns green you know, it's like, there's like a green and orange and a red. And like red is like, you did not do it. Or maybe there's a yellow too. And I've got a number of athletes who have gotten really stressed out about like the box turning green. Oh, I have
1: that as well. (laughs) Yeah, I know how that goes.
0: And so there's a number, like I've got athletes that, you know, if they typically run miles, I prescribe time or they've got a day a week where they don't run with their watch. Or, um, I've, you know, been able to turn off that feature for some athletes because I think it's really easy to get hung up on that. And so I, I feel like The coaching, that's the hardest part of coaching is, but my favorite part of coaching is having those conversations with athletes, not about, you know, oh, we're going to do this workout or that workout. It's about how they feel about their running, um, what, like, it should be a stress relief. It should be a time for them to go clear their head. They're all busy humans Mm -hmm. um, who happen to run. They're not, they're not like professional runners. And so, it's Those are those individual kind of therapy-esque conversations with athletes just kind of reframing how they feel about running and how f- they feel about themselves running.
1: How do you do that for yourself as an athlete? And do you have a coach that you can bounce those sort of things off of?
0: I Yeah, so I've been fortunate enough that I've had a number of really good coaches who have helped me at like different phases of both like my high school collegiate skiing versus, you know, running post-collegiately running running now um, who are my sounding board, um, who I have a lot of belief and trust in right now. So I worked with David Roach for a long time when I first started getting into trail and ultra running Mm -hmm. because I needed someone to tell me that I was awesome. And like I I needed someone to be there to pep me up because I had come out of overtraining. To be
1: that cheerleader. Yeah, I
0: I needed a cheerleader pretty desperately um, and someone just to believe in me because I didn't believe in myself at that point. Um, and I worked with David for a number of years, and still love David and Megan. And now um, I'm coached by a fellow CTS coach, um, Adam Saint Pierre,
1: mm-hmm. who also from, coaches Hillary Allen.
0: Yeah, we've got a little posse. He's ca- coaching Kate Bradley, Or cat. Sorry, <laughs> Kat Bradley as well. Sorry, Kate. Um, <laughs> but so we got kind of a little a little posse. Um, Adam's amazing. He comes from a sci- like a very science driven background. He's was. A ski coach for a long time so we click on a lot of number right. like a, a lot of different levels and i felt like my running had finally gotten to this place where i didn't need a coach to like tugboat me i needed a coach to kind of be more critical and like to you know get like dive push back deep. a little bit yeah um for me to like really ask a lot of questions of um and give me kind of that i was ready to be a more serious athlete again and not to say that you can't be a serious athlete in a different form of coaching, but I needed, I was needing more than what I thought David could give me at that point in time. Um, and those are like those natural, I have athletes who graduate from me as well. And I think that's what that is. It's like a natural development cycle.
1: Yeah. And I think there are coaches who work well with a certain type of athlete. And then when that athlete, as you just described, evolves out of that point of their career, um, it might be time for them to look for someone else or maybe it's personalities just don't blend, but whatever, the the situation is it's like there's got to be a good match there in terms of what the athlete wants to accomplish and what the coach can offer. And then that they're on the same page as far as how they're thinking about, you know, what the athlete wants to get out of their training and racing.
0: Yeah. So like I was running with Hillary Allen, um, before TDS and UTMB this year, she, I went over early and we actually did a a loop together on the UTMB course. Um, just the two of us. And it was amazing. And Hillary had put in an amazing summer of training was it, was super, super fit going into TDS, like ready to, you know, storm the castle. And there's a lot of climbing in that early part of the UTMB course. And I, on the second day, I think I texted Adam when we got to Cormier and I was like, Adam, I feel like I felt like garbage. And I like told Hillary that during the run, I was like, Hillary, I feel like garbage, but I'm really happy garbage. And it took me probably two days and like talking to Adam, like Hillary, Adam, and I were on this group text together. Um, of me is recognizing like I was actually moving really well. Hillary is just really good she's at going uphill. Turns out she's very good at going uphill, and so I had placed this judgment on how I was doing on myself during the run and kind of around the running we were doing. And it, you know, we all get hung up in that. But as soon as I could recognize that, like, no, I'm I'm actually doing okay. Hillary is moving really really well. That is not a direct reflection on like my fitness or how I'm going to do in UTMB or whatever it might be. Um, But having those those people that you like trust who aren't going to judge you for having those feelings um, to bounce that off of is, is huge.
1: And it's also a reminder for yourself as an athlete not to get caught up in what even your friend and training partner is doing and recognizing like, you know hey i actually am doing okay they are just on a different level than me and they're having a great day themselves and that i mean it showed in the results at tds because hillary knocked it out of the park
0: yeah she had an amazing day and it, the the crazy thing too and i think hillary would be fine with me saying this like hillary had doubts going into that race you know and like had she been training enough like she'd broken her ankle that this past spring like Was that enough training? Was that enough time on her feet? How would her ankle do do going downhill? And, you know, between Adam, myself, and a few other people being like, Hillary, no, you're going to be fine. Like, trust me. And I'd be like, Hillary, you're training more than me. You are training enough. You're going to be fine. Um, I think it's, you know, it's no reflection of what you can do, having those moments of doubt. But as long as you have a solid foundation, a team around you who are willing to both hear you and then, you know, kind of set you back on course is, is
1: huge. Yeah. And that support network is huge because even though these are largely solo endeavors, a lot of the time we couldn't do it without the people around us, the coaches, the training partners, the partners at home, uh, who are going to push us along. We don't feel like we can keep going. Yeah. I'd love to bring it back to where you are right now. We talked at the top about how your big race for the end of the year, hundred K in Japan got canceled and you decided to end your season. So As of this discussion, it's late October, November is right around the corner. What do things look like for you right now and what will they look like between now and the end of the year?
0: Yeah. So it's, I think it's hard to have a race canceled like that. And I know people are, you know, that, that could happen again for some other races coming down, down the road between now and the end of the year for other athletes. Um, so I kind of like took a step back after panicking for a while (laughs) to figure out what I wanted to do. decided that I wanted to stay more local and get to spend some time on the ground here, see some people like catch up on life a little bit. And coming from a ski background, I really enjoy having an off season. And so this just shifted where my off season would fall. Essentially, I'm taking more downtime right now. I've got a climbing trip planned over Thanksgiving, which I'm really excited about. So that'll allow me kind of a time to both mentally and physically reset before I kind of dive into what will be like the 2020 race season. There's a little local FKT that I'd like to do in the East Bay before January 1st, assuming we get some good clean air here. Um, but otherwise, I won't. I won't really race um, until probably February of 2020. Which FKT is that? Um, the East Bay Ridge Connector Trail. So, um, Patty is that the one Patty did. Yeah. yeah so Patty okay. and Brian Gillis have been going back and forth on it, and they're really there. I think there's one or two women's times on it. Um, so it hasn't like there's not a there's not been a fast time kind of thrown down on the women's side of things, and so Patty I think has the men's in like f- like low four hour like four eighteen it's thirty two miles, it's got some weird turns and like I've been talking to Brian Gillis a bunch about it um, he might come and, and help me out and Devin Yanko might come and help me out for it um provide some pacing and and directing more than anything so I don't spend time getting lost um so I might do that and that'll just be a fun effort because I feel like emotionally that would help me close out my year a little bit better. I started the year with a DNF and I ended the year with a DNF. And so, um, and I'm not a DNF person. So 2019 was kind of weird in that sense. And I feel like this little FKT project will kind of like hopefully cleanse my palate. Yeah. A just bit. go
1: out on a bit of a high note.
0: Yeah. Just go. I mean, and it's like, it's not needed. Like no one cares that I DNF. But it's for you. Yeah.
1: Um, have you done many FKTs?
0: I haven't. I've done like zero
1: I've I don't think so. I've got
0: dreams. I've got big dreams of FKTs. Okay. Um, actually, when I helped pace um, Magda on the Taharum Trail FKT, and I've been I've been eyeing it for a year and a half now, and so we're trying to work out the 2020 schedule. But if everything kind of fits into plan, depending on re- the race season and and the weather, more than anything, um, something of that nature, you know, a, very, a super long FKT attempt would be in my like my fall of 2020 plan
1: we'll get into your fall 2020, not fall 2020 plans, but 2020 plans in general here in a Bix. We discussed them on the run prior to this conversation, but let's talk about Magda's FKT at Lake Tahoe. You went up to support her. You spent some time with her on the trail. That was a little over a week ago. Now she came up short by a few hours. What did you get yourself from being a part of that experience?
0: So I got a really late tag in to be part of that. Like I woke up to, or I went to bed Tuesday night, having just heard that Magda was going to start on Friday, and I was kind of like, "Oh man!" And then I woke up Wednesday morning to find out that my race got canceled, and I was like, "Really? Like now everything feels funky." I sent Magda like a congrat, like a like good luck message. I was like, "Hey, like I I saw last night that like you're going to do this. Good luck. Like let me know if you need anything." And Thursday night I got a text that one of their pacers was hurt, and could I come up? And so I literally like threw my stuff together, cleared my Friday schedule, and drove to Tahoe Friday morning and met up with the crew um, about 52 miles in to the Hi. push. I met up with them Friday afternoon. Um, and that was really cool because it was a combination of people who I knew super well, um, Fernando and Io from the Bay Area, um, and people who I didn't know super well despite being in a similar cir- circle like Tim Tollefson and Chris Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian Gillis was there as well. We quite the crew. So it was really cool because, you know, we got to, not only were we helping Magda do this like epic, crazy thing that we got to witness, you know, firsthand, there were sections of the trail with the wind that, you know, made us want to quit, let alone Magda, you know, but it was really more than anything, having the community come together and be a part of that community who kind of just dropped everything for the weekend to help a friend reach a goal was really special to be part of.
1: I think that's one of the really cool things about ultra running in general. My background is very different from yours, but I come from that track cross country marathon background, training partners, important coaches are important and partners are important, but you're generally not stopping at aid stations, getting (laughs) help from, you know, those who have helped you get there to, to carry forward. Whereas in, you know, ultra races where there is a first, second, third place or an FKT attempt like this, it is about like, you know, having your squad to give you what you need to keep going, whether that's food or, you know, hydration or even just some encouragement. And especially in a situation like that where Magda's is trying to do this like really epic thing, like 175 miles around like pretty rugged terrain through a cold, windy night. Uh, And that's something that's new for you to experience, like watching her do that. What did that do for your own ambitions moving forward?
0: Well, there were like the there's like the practical side of things where I was like I could do it with a much smaller crew, and then I was like I don't think I could do it with a much smaller crew. I think it's they're the early miles where maybe you only need like one pacer at a time because you're still talking, but having you know I was with Tim Tolufson, um into Friday night and then spent most of the day running with Chris Brown um, and then Nick joined us kind of late in that section as well and and you know like the the person who's like doing this whole thing so Magda is no longer talking, you know, besides to tell us that she does not want to eat what we're giving her. Um, so it's important for that person to have people around her having a conversation that you can listen in on. And that was kind of eye-opening in the sense of, a, like, okay, like you you could do it really like with a really thin crew, but it'd be a lot easier if you had your pacer not talking to the wind and had a pacer who could talk to someone else and you can just jump onto that conversation in your, in your mind. Um, and then also just watching, watching her like grit and determination, even if it became a silent grit and determination, um, but still show so much love for everyone that was there was really just phenomenal to, to witness. And I hope that if I attempt something like that, I can have as much grit and grace because I, d- I doubt that is easy when you have not slept for, you know, 50 hours, <laughs>
1: I mean, I don't care who you are. If you haven't slept for 50 hours, you're probably going to get a bit grouchy at yeah. points. And, and Magda, I think, is really grit and grace personified. I mean, she obviously is an accomplished athlete from her track marathon days. And she's certainly had quite the impact, you know, in ultra running. And I mean, she is just the most gracious person in the entire world, very willing to give her time and, you know, her energy to people who, you know, ask her for it. And I mean, to, I mean, I wasn't there myself, but I got the download from Tim. I got the download from, Eo. I got a bit of a download from you now. It's like, that's just something to be a, a part of and like a tremendous learning experience. If you're, an up and coming athlete, or if you're just someone who wants to live your own life with more grit and grace.
0: Yeah. It w- it was amazing just to witness and to be a part of, and we were, I think spirits remained high. Um, even when we got tense as we got, we were ahead of Chrissy's time for a long time. And then we got closer and closer to Chrissy's time. And then we were at Chrissy's time, you know, looking to come in maybe just two minutes ahead of Chrissy's record. And I think when it fell apart, it fell apart pretty rapidly. Like they did, I think they moved. If the final twenty six miles, there were ten miles where they were still on on pace, and then all of a sudden things kind of just mm-hmm. were no longer gonna happen, and they just kind of accepted that, and but you know didn't want to quit, didn't want to like they were gonna keep going, and that I think shows a great level of like humility and respect for the like what the the mission that they had sent out to accomplish, because Matt didn't have to finish; she could have you know fallen off pace and pulled the plug for sure. I don't think anyone would have she was so cold i don't think we were all so cold honestly like sitting in trucks with all of our clothing on we were all still cold i don't think anyone would have passed judgment on her if she had stopped for some reason and for her to have never really complained at all during it i don't think any of us actually heard her she mentioned a blister once to one of the pacers and that was it i think um but to con- like to continue to like f- like finish what she set out to do despite it not going to plan, I think, shows a, a huge level of, like, humility and respect for the effort.
1: What was the vibe like immediately afterward when she finished?
0: So it was really cool. We, we all, you know, were, like, checking the tracker overnight. We all kept getting up, going back to bed, getting up, going back to bed. And we finally all rolled over there to Big Meadow where she started and where she would finish. And there was no conversation, like, hey, let's go find Magda. We just all started walking up the trail. And everyone was in, was in good spirits. Like, we knew that Magda was safe, that she had, you know, Tim and Andy with her, probably the two best people she could have with her at that point in time. Um, and so I think the group was just, you know, we had witnessed something amazing. We were all, you know, we were congratulating Fernando on his engagement. We were talking about race plans for each of us for next year, um, kind of with new friends in a lot of ways. Like, there was no somberness to it. And
1: you and, all came in that final mile together.
0: Yeah, we, wa- we walked her back into the Big Meadow parking lot and she gave us a little a little talking to. <laughs> that was like very, very, I mean, Magda had not slept at this point for two days. So she was surprisingly coherent at that point and said more w- words than we had heard her say in about 24 hours. And then uh, she directed us all to the big rock in the parking lot so she could go touch it and finish what she started. But it was it was really cool. Like it was, you know, definitely like shivers, shivers and tears kind of thing.
1: What'd she say to you guys in the talking to?
0: She just thanked us for you know spending time with her that weekend, for giving up, giving up time to be there with her, to, you know, for helping her. She said that it was really cool to listen to her pacers get to know one another out on the trail, which just speaks to the kind of the community aspect of it. Because there were like we didn't know each other necessarily. We got to learn about each other when we were out there. And just thanked us all for being there.
1: FKT or not, that's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, it was. It was pretty exceptional for Let's, being super incoherent. <laughs> it was pretty exceptional. Well,
1: oh, I can't blame her for being incoherent. I don't know anyone who wouldn't be at that yeah. at that point in the game. Let's talk about 2020 for you. When we were out running a little while ago, you told me how you are not going to go back to Western states in 2020. Is that something we can talk about?
0: Oh yeah, no, we can talk about it. I haven't. I haven't yet paid an entry fee or anything.
1: But you could because you finished in the top 10, so you've got that automatic entry into next year's race and most people might look at you and be like, "What? You're crazy. Like I would kill to get a golden ticket or I'd kill to win the lottery and you are willingly going to probably bypass it."
0: Yeah, and and I 100% get that, but at the same time, so yes, like there are people who would kill to to be in my position to automatically get to go back. But there are also people who want nothing more than to get into the lottery and I knew going into last year that I probably would take a break after Western States. I wouldn't go back this year, this upcoming year. Mm -hmm. And so I was really happy to actually finish in the top 10 because I got to, I'm getting to leave the race on my own terms. I'm getting to say I want to take a break as opposed to have finishing outside the top 10 and just not going for a golden ticket. Because I got into Western States through the lottery two years ago. I was not a golden ticket. I intentionally was not going to try to golden ticket but I was drawn seventh on the wait list. So I knew I was going like I put into the lottery like every good little ultra runner does not expecting to get in because it was my second year applying and suddenly was going to be running Western States and had the, you know, had a a really amazing race last year and didn't really want to go back. So I had a really great race in 2018, was really satisfied with the day I put together there, had a wonderful crew, things went, went smooth. Like I was conservative and it worked out. I didn't think that I needed to go back this next year um, or 2019, I guess, but realized and had encouragement from my partner and from other people just saying, you know, like you went into 2018 kind of with, you know, not the best training. We We moved to California the week of Western States in 2018 like literally showed up in San Francisco the Tuesday of race week.
1: You were telling me as we were walking up the stairs here to your apartment that you made your partner carry all the furniture <laughs> because you were in taper mode.
0: Yeah, I was not going to walk up and down four flights of stairs on the Tuesday before Western States like a hundred times. Um, so I helped carry the big items. So, so I knew that I, 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 I was on the fence about going back in 2019, but was kind of talked into it. Like you're going to have a great year of training. You're local now. Um, like why not go back? And I said, you're right, and I would be really bummed if I missed a heinous weather year. Like, it was looking like we were going to have a lot of snow and it was going to be hot, and I was so excited about that. And I, you know, had openly said, I will not be sad if I miss a good weather year. And by good weather, I mean the weather that we got, like, reasonably low temperatures. Um, Western States is a really fast race, and it's a race that I don't think I'm actually particularly well-suited for because it it takes the road legs, I think, um, like, they perform really well there. And so I knew that I do really well when the conditions are... The, the worse the weather is, the worse the conditions are, the better I tend to do. And that acts as a leveler for me. Yeah. It means you have to be smart. It means you have to take care of yourself. It means you have to be tough. Like, I am really good at doing those things. I'm a really good, like, troubleshooter. Um, and so all of a sudden... Everyone kept telling me race week of 2019, like, oh, the weather's going to be perfect. And I was like, no, no, the weather is not going to be perfect. Like, please stop telling me how great the weather is because I am so pissed that it is going to be like below Puts me at a
1: disadvantage.
0: Yeah, I was like, this is, I was like, there are probably three of us, you know. It's probably like me and Ian Sharman and Caitlin Gerben and maybe like Jeff Browning who are like upset that the weather is. And not because like they're all fast, but it's because those are the people who I look to as far as like being really smart and really tough. Um, and excel well in really like weird conditions. And so all of a sudden we weren't going to have that advantage. And so I went into the race, did what I could do. I ran really, really conservative and snuck into the top 10 over the last 60 K. Like I went from 20th to 10th, like leaving Forest Hill. And so, Now I can leave the race on my own terms and and get to race other things, which is really, really exciting.
1: I want to get into that in a bit. But what was it like going into the 2019 race versus 2018? Having moved here, being a quote unquote local, there's a ton of excitement around Western states in this area year in and year out. Did that add to it at all in addition to the experience that you gained from the year before?
0: I think I had more stable training. This past year, um, I was kind of working a bunch of odd jobs in Washington before we moved. I was, I was scribing in an ER, so I was working a ton and working nights and all sorts of weird stuff as well. Um, so I think my training was a lot more stable going into this year. Um, I, ha- I didn't have some of my training partners around me. And although I wouldn't say that I trained with a bunch of people locally for Western States, um, I had friends who like EO, for example, EO and I didn't train together we like, hiked together a little we hike bit, We hiked together, though. though. And so I was actually worried that I, like, might not hear from EO, like, in the build-up to Western States, because I knew that she, like, had her blinders on and was the training for this thing. And I, like, did not want to be a distraction to that at all. Um, like, she was not like, she's who I was pulling for in Western States, because I, like, get to have, you know, my picks. And, um, but I was, so I was, like, really surprised and delighted by the fact that, you know, she, like, continued to reach out to me and... We, so we went hiking. So in the afternoons, we both had a flexible schedule. We'd like head out midday or kind of like in the height, like the height of the heat of the afternoon on the warm side of Tam in our jackets and we'd go for a hike. And so we'd all done our training already in the day, but to get, to get those moments in together, it was really nice to know that I did, I did have people around me, even if it was slightly different than my training partners in the past.
1: How about the execution of the race itself? From a time standpoint, you ran <laughs> like within two minutes of what you ran, I ran yeah, like the year 60 before seconds
0: or something. yeah uh,
1: it's pretty I mean when I was looking at your results earlier I was like is this right yeah no I guess
0: that is right everyone else PR'd and I was fit enough to PR and instead I proved my point about the heat and ran the exact same time
1: um, but from an execution standpoint did anything change from the year before the conditions were obviously very different the field is different year in and year out but you finished one spot back of where you were the year before in a very similar time
0: yeah so just slightly slower than 2018 by like 60 seconds or something. Um, I knew I wasn't gonna break 20 hours kind of later in the race. Um, I ran so I very much did my own thing in 2018. I, I was alone for a lot of the race um, interspersed with some men I, I ran with Casey for a bit in the early stages and Camilla but not together together and this year I ended up kind of waiting um, right at the top of the escarpment and found Eliza Lapierre. And we ran, we picked up Liz Canty as well, and we ran almost every step of the first 100K together. Um, and so was that, was that the perfect strategy? Probably not. I probably meant that I could have run some of that a little bit faster, some of that a little bit slower. Um, we all have our strengths. And so the first 100K definitely, Like at, at some point going into Michigan Bluff, I started to get really panicky because I couldn't do math. And I was convinced that we were like way off our times from last year, that we had somehow gotten really slow. And I was like, how are we, how, are we, how, how did we do this? Like freaked out. And like, I went through Michigan bluff and like AJW is there. And I was like, we're so far behind. We're like, it was freaking out, like probably incoherently. And he's like, no, you're like, you're fine. Like you're okay. And like, it turns out I was like a half an hour behind our times from the year before or something, which wasn't crazy. Um, and so I ran the last 60 K, I think a lot better this year than last year. And in part part of that was probably because I wasn't in survival mode. Part of that was probably a benefit from the heat, just not being as hot as the year before. Um, But in 2018, I felt like I was much more in survival mode. Like we were just kind of doing what we could to keep my legs from cramping and to just move steadily. And this year I felt like I could really run with my pacers. And we were, you know, we were out hunting. You could race. Yeah, like I, I was ready to race, and I, I, I closed on Addie Bracy, who was in ninth, but just didn't. We ran out of distance, essentially. Like, had it been a hundred and twenty mile race, I think I like, I think I paced it perfectly. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was uh, only hundred miles, and so that just, you know, it is what it is. Lessons, lessons learned. Um, but yeah, it was mostly, I think, just like a calculation error on my point, my, on my part, but also just like bringing that fitness to the last. 60k
1: looking ahead to 2020 what do you want to do differently next year
0: i'm so this year was interesting because i i set up my season around two major hundred mile races and my goal had been to be top 10 at western states and utmb and unfortunately i fell victim to like the utmb stomach bug plague this year and puked for like 60 miles like was given medication kept puking i ran a lot. I saw you and I asked you if I could make it to Cormier on Coke. And I did. And then I had no energy. And so, um,
1: well, and you started puking a lot earlier than many other people. Did. I started
0: puking around mile 12. So a lot earlier than I would like to be puking in a hundred mile race for no real reason to like, I puked up watermelon to start. And then I puked up everything after that. And so I couldn't, I could keep no solid food or even like semi-solid like gels or anything down. Like the only thing I could get down was a little bit of water and a little bit of Coke. Um, and at some point you like run out of energy. Like you're just so in the tank that you've got nothing left. So my two, like I, 2019 was set up around these two huge hundred mile races with like kind of like for me a big goal. Like I want to I want to be in the top 10 at both of these things. Um, and think I had the fitness going into UTMB, but just not the day. And so for 2020, I'm going to do things a little bit differently. I think I'm going to race a little bit more, but shorter, shorter races. Um, because I'm not doing Western states, it opens up a lot of opportunities to actually race other things. And so I'm looking at, um, because I'm not racing now with Japan canceled, I'll start my season earlier than I was anticipating. Normally I wouldn't race kind of until later in the spring, maybe mm-hmm. like Sonoma or something of that nature. But this year I'm going to probably race Black Canyons I think I don't need a golden ticket, but it's a good February race and it's domestic mm-hmm. um, and a good field, which will be fun. Just like to see see friends um, and probably chucking up fifty k to get back up to Bellingham, and then if schedules allow, going to something like um, before um, setting things up for like our Adidas event at the end of June, which is Western States Week um, over in Europe with Infinite Trails.
1: What I love about the sound of that is the diversity of it. Like Black Canyon is very different than Chuckanut, which is very different than Transvolcania. And my point being is you aren't afraid to do different things. There are some people who will peg themselves as a mountain runner. There are some people who peg themselves as a flat and fast runner. Where do you see your sweet spot in the sport?
0: So I think that's the biggest thing I've learned over the last couple of years is that I, for the longest time, believed that I couldn't hack it in these faster races that I wasn't, that I wasn't fast enough that I wasn't like, I couldn't keep up with these girls. Um, And that I think that perception has changed a whole lot. And I don't really, I've, I've won very few races, so I'm not driven by that. Like I have got, I think two, like one kind of bigger win, and that's it under my belt. And like, so I'm not driven by having to win or having to set course records. I want to go compete with a group of women. And so I generally pick competitive races, um over things that I think I'm going to be exceptional at. So Black Canyons will have a good field. Chuckanut generally has a good field. Transvolcania will have a good field. I think races like Transvolcania that are that are steeper and kind of demand a little bit demand hiking as opposed to being, you know, a more Straight runnable 50k race, or 100k right. um suit me a lot better because I come from that ski background and I really like hiking. Um which is a weird, I think a lot of runners are, are maybe anti-hiking or don't think that you should hike. I'll raise
1: my hand over here.
0: Yeah, I've got friends who really hate hiking. Um, I do not hate hiking. Like ha- Using poles is like an extension of my body, and um, I really I enjoy getting to do that kind of stuff. Um, but I like being able to mix it up and race different races. And race races where I'm going to go see people that I want to see or be in an environment I want to be in. So... But because I'm not focusing on two big hundreds, it allows me to race a bunch more and race a, a bigger variety of things. And so like I, I the, the thing that I really, really want to do and everything else will kind of fit in and around it, is I want to go to Iger 101K in July next year. Mm-hmm. And I haven't figured out kind of beyond that. But
1: that looks like a beautiful course. Yeah,
0: it's pretty. It's in a it's in a zone that I've never raced in, that I've never run in. Um, I can kind of pair it. I don't like to go to Europe for one race because I feel like I'm, I'm wasting my air miles and my, you know, the emissions to get there. And I try to make those trips a little bit longer if I can. So I'll go over for infinite trails at the end of June and I'll stay over for a couple weeks because I girl will be two weeks after it and kind of make a little three week Euro block and then come home again. Um, and then we're getting married in September and so yeah, and so trying to figure out races kind of in and around that. I really wanted to do Run Rabbit, but they moved their their race to the weekend of our wedding. So not not super stoked with Run Rabbit on that move, but I don't think I get any say in when their race weekend is.
1: Just have the wedding at Run Rabbit weekend. You'll have a lot of your friends there already yeah, we'll and turns. you can just make a make a festival out of it, why not?
0: Yeah. So I'm not sure what I'm gonna do in the fall. If I go over to UTMB again, or if I go over there and be there, because I love being there. I think a lot of people know that about me. I have a really hard time not doing all the things when I'm there. Like I'll do live commentary, and although I'm not maybe like seeing, like I'm not like signing autographs because no one knows who I am. But I love being able to sit down in the booth and like talk about the runners and talk about the racing going on because I'm a major nerd, and I like I have an opinion about what I think's gonna happen. Um, even if it's in a race that I'm in, like I still have an opinion about what I think might happen.
1: Well, if I can chime in, you're very good at it too. We did our UTMB preview and post race show with Billy Yang this past year, and you could, I mean, and you were on the live commentary throughout the race and you're very, very good at it. So, I mean, I'd encourage you to go just for that, even if you're not racing, because I think people who are paying attention to the event, whether it's pre post race type shows or are watching it live can gain a lot from your insight.
0: Yeah. So if I can convince this is like the blessing and the curse of being a sponsored runner, right? Is that although I have my own race goals, like sponsors always have like specific things that they like expect or want. And as long as like those expectations are clear and we have agreements on things, it's fine. And so I kind of, lo- I would love to do that, like love to go over and, and do commentary. And if they need me to race, like maybe I do OCC, which is definitely not in my wheelhouse. Um, probably way too short and way too fast, I feel like in a way, but um, would be, you know, would totally be worthwhile. It's still an amazing race. And then set up for something like a Taha Rim Trail FKT attempt in the fall, which would be my first year in a couple of years, not doing a hunt, like a true hundred mile race. If I do that. And that also feels weird. Like, I don't know, I don't have to do a hundred, but that still feels funny. I was going
1: to ask, is that not you at all? What do you mean? Um, to know that you might not do a hundred mile race next year. If it's like, well, maybe I can like squeeze one in at the very end of the year, or maybe I'll just take something else out and put one on there because I feel like I should.
0: Yeah. I, I generally don't. I've been I've learned how to not race because I feel like I should. I've learned to do races that I are either building for something else. Like I did Lake Sonoma because I needed to get uncomfortable for Western states. Like I knew that I wasn't gonna win Lake Sonoma. Like those women are really fast, but I knew that it'd be really good practice at running 50 miles and running 50 miles hard. Um and so I don't feel the need to raise certain things. Um, and part of that, once again, is like sponsor obligation and figuring out what they like, what the expectations are. Um, but I think I can be a satisfied ultra runner without having to you know, show up to one of the big hundreds next year, as long as I put together a calendar that kind of checks the boxes for me.
1: How do you navigate those types of conversations with your athletes, many of whom don't have sponsored obligations that they need to build their schedule around, but they are trying to figure out how they're going to lay out their year?
0: Yeah. So I think for a lot of athletes, the conversation comes down to talking about not, um, I, I encourage my athletes not to be going race to race, like not having long-term vision and being like, well, I know that I'm training for this race and then I'll figure out what comes after that. I think that's really hard. It's hard as a coach because you don't know what you're building to. And all of a sudden your athlete has eight a races and, and no one needs eight a races. Um, so I encourage my athletes to like kind of figure out what the big goal is for the season or two big goals for the season. And then we can kind of work around them. So I've got a bunch of athletes who will train for like a spring marathon because they live in a weird environment and training for an early ultra kind of is terrible. And then we'll roll that into like a late, like an August or a September, like big ultra goal. And we can build in between that. And I'm a huge proponent of like training races. Some people hate training races um, with the idea that like they're a waste of time or a waste of money or a waste of effort. But I think if you can like take your ego aside and know that like you can still go hard, but we're not, you might not perform as well as you could be otherwise because maybe we're not tapering or maybe it's not like you're not getting like the perfect build into it. Um, but I think those are still moments to grow and to practice things as a runner and they're invaluable. And, Despite, you know, you can go do a 30-mile training run, but nothing falls apart like it does when you pin on a race bib. Like, the weirdest things will start to happen to you. And so I think that I encourage my athletes to, like, set, like, a couple A goals, and then we can figure out how other things that they might want to do fit in and around
1: it. No, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, one of the biggest conversations I have with many of my athletes is, hey, the best way to practice becoming a better racer is to get out there and race. And obviously with ultra distance races, you've got to pick your spots because you can only do so many effectively within a year. But if you look at them as learning experiences and as opportunities to work on weaknesses or situations you can't put yourself in, like you running Lake Sonoma and prep for Western States, like you can't really put yourself in that type of situation in a training run. But. But you pay the entry fee, put your bib on, and go out there and get your clock cleaned. Uh, it can become really valuable when you're trying to charge over the last 60K at Western States and fight for, in your case, a top 10 spot.
0: Yeah, I think there's no better way to practice it than to actually get out there and, and do it and to go through those motions, um, to practice maybe a nutrition strategy you've been working on or just like the anxiety that can come with races. Even if we don't think there's anxiety, I, for whatever reason, yeah, like you put those safety pins into your shirt and Think, and anxiety things, things go wrong, like sure. You know, all of a sudden you have GI issues, or all of a sudden like you forget how to drink water. I don't know what it is, or or you have no ability to pace yourself, and so I think that it's important to find those races that you're still excited to go do. I think it's still important that the races that you're using as practice are ones that you you want to be at, that you want to show up to, um, be them local or regional or somewhere else in the country um whatever kind of fits individuals like time and budget and all that kind of stuff um i think it's really hard to do races that you're not excited about at all as as an actual as an a race or even as a practice race just because that that mentally i think is probably not worth the the financial investment
1: well and if the excitement's not there from the beginning you're already in a hole to start
0: yeah, I don't think many of us really need to practice that aspect of of ultra running um when there are other races that might might just be much more, you know, invigorating.
1: Hey, we're taking a quick break to thank our sponsor for this episode. It's the 37th Annual Kaiser Permanente San Francisco Half Marathon, 10K and 5K. This race is a runner's favorite for its scenery and value. I can personally vouch for it as I've run the half marathon many times, and last year I had a blast winning the 10K. The half marathon is a fast and certified course through San Francisco's scenic Golden Gate Park, and it's been selected as the Road Race of the Year by the Road Runners Club of America several times. The 5K and 10K are both fast downhill courses, and both are certified by USA Track and Field. After the race, you can follow the runners and walkers to the post race festival for food, drinks, free massages, and offerings from all the vendors. The Kaiser Permanente San Francisco Half Marathon 10K and 5K is presented by Pama Runners. This event supports local San Francisco Bay Area community organizations and nonprofits with donations of more than $75,000 per year, which is just incredible. So – Mark your calendars. Race day is February 2nd, 2020. You can register today at GetFitKPSF.com. Use the code SHAKEOUT5, that's SHAKEOUT and the number 5, and you'll save 5 bucks on your registration before November 30th, 2019. You can also find all of this information in the show notes that go along with this episode. My thanks to the 37th Annual Kaiser Permanente San Francisco Half Marathon 10K and 5K for their support of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Let's go back to your origins as an athlete. As you mentioned earlier in this conversation, you don't come from a typical track cross-country background. You did start running when you were in high school but switched over to skiing not long after. Take me through those early years running cross country track in high school and why you got away from it when you did.
0: Yeah. So I I grew up in a really small town in Northern Wisconsin, uh, where you were kind of expected to be a three sport athlete. And so going from middle school to high school, I had kind of planned to, I was a sprinter. I was convinced I was a sprinter. Like I was going to run the 200 and the 400 and um, that I was going to play soccer because I was a soccer player. And that I was going to, I don't know, do something else. And I'm not sure what that was exactly. But that was kind of my, my vision going in. And I was playing soccer all through the summer going into high school even. And just was kind of continuing to be pestered by the high school cross-country coach. And so I actually joined cross-country my freshman year in the middle of the season. Like finished a soccer tournament, had a really bad ankle sprain, and like joined the cross-country team on crutches like the next week. And I like showed up every day after school because those would count as like days of practice, so that I would, like as soon as I was healthy, I could like, not legally, but like I was like qualified to race for mm-hmm. the team, um, and like join. We'd a like a huge cross country team, for whatever reason, for being a pretty small school, um, and kind of fell in love with like that team aspect and the running aspect of it. Um, running was probably the thing I was good at in soccer as well. I would not say I was like, you know, an expert forward or something. I was, I was good at the running, the running thing and and running for a long time, you know, not getting tired throughout a match. Um, but I got hurt a lot early on in running as well. Like I tore the growth plate off my hip. Um, the, I guess that was the fall of my, my freshman year. So like right after I started running, essentially I had like kind of a weird hip injury. um, and they're like, and I was planning to to run or play indoor soccer for the winter before the spring track season. And they basically told me that was not, that was not going to happen. Um, and joined the ski team and hated it and was kind of a terrible skier and a, and probably not the best teammate. Like it wasn't easy. Running was easy. Skiing like took coordination and, you know, I would complain about trying to ski for 5K. Um, but my, like the coaches didn't give up on me and this
1: yeah. was cross-country skiing?
0: Yeah, this was cross-country skiing the winter of my freshman year of high school. And then the next year, you know, went through a cross-country season again, that went really well, um, or for me, went really well. Um, but you stayed healthy? Yeah, I was healthy, I wasn't injured. My best friend joined the ski team that winter, she was a freshman, she was a year younger than me and she joined the ski team and all of a sudden I had this person at practice that I was like excited to go skiing with. And that changed skiing for me. She was a much better skier, much more into skiing. Her family was into skiing. Um, so all of a sudden I had to, like, this family and this person who were like taking me out skiing on the weekends and bringing me to races who were like invested in me showing up to those things. And slowly, kind of over my sophomore year into that summer, um, after my sophomore year of high school, where I got invited to like a regional elite group camp for skiing, skiing totally took over. Despite still running cross country in the falls and track in the springs, those were things that I was doing for training for skiing, as opposed to skiing being like this bridge sport between the cross country running and the track seasons. And I like, I think that's probably mostly owed to just like having a friend that I was invested in spending time with.
1: How much of it was the success that you experienced in skiing really not long after you started? seems like within a year or so you were pretty competitive.
0: Yeah, so I I think there's always some of that. Like it's always, you know, we're like are people good at sports or specific sports because they were naturally good at them or they had to work for them. Um and I don't think I was I think I like being bad at things. Like I think I I think that really bothers me and so I try harder.
1: Having that beginner's mindset.
0: Yeah, like I like I started climbing this past year and like I love that I suck at it. Like I'm terrible. Like I climb with like 9-year-old girls at the gym and they kick my butt. Um I think I really thrive in those kind of like having to learn a new skill, having to like work at it, practice it, go through those motions and and get to see improvement too, which is which is huge. Seeing improvement definitely is a big is a big motivator. And I think that that was probably part of it. I definitely had coaches who were looking out for me and who were kind of pulling me along. Like there was no I had not done what was probably necessary to be qualified for that regional elite group camp the summer after my sophomore year, like I think it was probably because the camp was being hosted in my hometown that I kind of got like an extra invite. It's convenient. Yeah. I was definitely like the least, like Jesse Diggins, who is like now an Olympic gold medalist, who's a, a grade younger than me. Like she was there and like an, an up and coming star in the sport, even at that point, even as like a freshman in high school. Um, so I think I was probably underqualified to be there, but what that did was I got to spend time with, post-collegiate skiers who are racing professionally, along with um, coaches from the U.S. ski team. And I don't know what they did or said during that camp, but I walked into that camp, you know, kind of like thinking I was a runner who skied still in a way to walking out of that camp, like convinced I was going to the Olympics. And so they had some very good commu- like communicators and that coaching staff because I, I walked out of that camp so motivated to ski and to ski train, Um, having walked into that camp super underprepared.
1: When did you realize that skiing was something you were going to continue to do in college?
0: I remember having a conversation, because I went abroad my junior year, and I had a conversation with my high school coach um, before I went abroad, and he was kind of upset that I was going abroad. Like, how are you going to ski in college if you're gone your junior year? Like, no coaches are going to care. Um, they're not, you're not going to have any results. Like you're, you need to go to junior nationals, all this kind of stuff. Cause I think I had, I had missed, I hadn't qualified for like the junior national team, like for like the regional team, um, properly my sophomore year. Um, and so I think I've always had a misunderstanding of my limitations maybe, which I think is probably a strength in ultra running, because I distinctly remember him being like, why are you going abroad? It's not good for your ski career. Like, how are you going to make a college team if you're not here? And I was like, I'm not worried about it. Like, I'm going to be good enough next year that like, I'm going to be able to be on a team. And I don't know where that confidence came from or where I was just like, it'll happen. Like, I will make it work. Because that was like, I shouldn't, shouldn't have been my response probably. But I went abroad and I really wanted to be abroad and out of high school for a year. Um, and got to train a bunch over there, um, ski, and I did a bunch of orienteering and that kind of stuff. Where'd you go? I went to Latvia. My my family's from Eastern Europe, and so I really wanted to go over there of all places. So um, mm-hmm. spent a year skiing. It's where I got my first introduction to biathlon, as well, because I like the ski team that I trained with had a biathlon program. So skiing with and and shooting a twenty two, um, and I feel like that the summer I got back in my senior year, like things just like athletically kind of accelerated. And although I, I had a few offers, I was getting more like rowing offers despite not having ever been in a row, like having ever rowed. Really? Then skiing offers because like exactly like my high school coach said, they're like, you, you've never gone to junior, like junior nationals. You've like, you've never done this, this or this. Like I won, I won state my senior year and, and made the junior national team and had a pretty good race at, at junior nationals that year. Um, but like colleges are pretty much decided at that point too, right? That, that's the spring of my senior year. Um, but it was, yeah, I think things just kind of accelerated.
1: But clearly collegiate coaches could recognize that you were an athlete if they're trying to recruit you for rowing and you had zero experience doing that.
0: I think skiers kind of fall into that a little bit because most of us are the right height and weight to be lightweight, lightweight crew, like lightweight rowers. Because um, most like... You know, you're like five six or five seven, and and weigh like 125 pounds or whatever. I like whatever I weighed as a high schooler. Yeah, you've clearly um, got a
1: big engine from cross country skiing. Big engine. You're
0: strong. You know, you can you can do 30 pull-ups type of deal. Um, that's basically rowing. Like it's lap pull-downs over and over again, and so I think that was that's a natural like like collegiate rowing coaches will look at high school skiers because they're like we can teach them how to be in a boat.
1: Do you ever seriously consider it?
0: Not then, but I did when I was on the U.S. Biathlon team because I was just gonna go from one obscure sport to the next. Um, I'd gotten some invites when I was on the U.S. Biathlon team to join a development team for rowing because I like fit that lightweight, like rower, like profile. Model. Like they're like, you are this height, you weigh this much, you can lift this many weights, like you fit all these things. Um, but didn't really want to move to Philadelphia, <laughs> and so um, like had seriously considered it um at certain points during like my biathlon career a little bit um and I get to those places too where like I dropped out of college to pursue biathlon I get to these places where I feel like if things are not going my way I don't feel like I'm necessarily a quitter but like I will pursue them to a certain point and if i not if I cannot make things change either the people like my coaches or the people that I'm training with or the situation like grad school is a good example of that um I don't like, I don't need to bang my head against a wall. And so there have been like these major inflection points in my life where I'm like, clearly I'm not being a good student and a good athlete right now. I'm just going to focus on athletics or whatever that might be.
1: it's pretty incredible to have that level of self-awareness because more often the case is that people will stay in something, whether it's a relationship or it's grad school or, you know, it's a sport that they're good at, but they're not really enjoying be- because of that and because there's some level of comfort with it or because it's easy, whereas it's a lot harder to say, Nope, not for me. I'm going to go and do what I really want. This to
0: is do. reassuring for Stephen. I'm going to have to tell him this now, Stephen. I'm really good at quitting things. And clearly like we're still in a relationship. So things must so be good. This okay. must be a
1: good thing. We've this got must going be here. a good thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but it's like there have been many an inflection point where I've kind of jumped, jumped sports or transitioned across something. Um, and they've always been like, as soon as I make that change, like there's a sigh of relief or like I, like it feels right kind of immediately after. And so I've never, I've, I've never doubted any of those decisions. Like even to this day, like choosing to leave biathlon when I did. Um, when they had like a big, like a big, you know, they changed the coaching staff after I left. They changed how they were going to name people to teams right after I left. And I would like to think that I like helped with some of those changes. Um, but even then, you know, I'm like, I'm happy that I am where I am right now and that I'm not still chasing that or that I'm not going back to that. And you can, there's nothing wrong with going back to different things. Like maybe I won't run a run hundred mile next year. But I, I think that it's it's nice to have looked like looked back from where I came from and look at where I am right now and, and be happy with the decisions I've made.
1: So your first exposure to biathlon is when you're in Latvia as an exchange student, yeah. I guess. When did you decide that you wanted to pursue that as a competitive sport and see how good you could get?
0: So I was skiing for Montana State University in Bozeman and going to school, and I was getting the sense that I wasn't being a good, a good athlete and a good, a good student. And there was a lot of push from not from USA Biathlon, but from USA Skiing to kind of forego college to take a gap year or a a plethora of gap years to pursue sport, to focus on training year-round. Um, and that was kind of eating at me, I think. Um, I like kind of wanted to be in that world. And was also struggling with my place on the ski team. We the coach at the time definitely favored seniority. So even though we'd like I would qualify for NCAAs, I might not get to go because I was not a junior or a senior. And independent of where you qualified on the team, mm-hmm. you can only bring three. And the coach gets to decide, like if we qualified five women, she still gets to pick which three she takes. And so that, I didn't like that, but there's nothing I could do to change that. And so I was looking at going abroad for a year to, you know, to ski somewhere else, um, to transfer colleges. I approached, I was like on loan to the college cross country team at that point. Like I didn't train with them, but I, I ran cross country for, for Montana State as well, which is weird.
1: Yeah, that is weird. And I
0: actually went to the cross country coach and I told him like, hey, I wasn't on scholarship. Um, I was on an academic scholarship and I said, Hey, like Dale, if you can, if, if I can get a little bit of money from, from the, from like track and field and cross country, like I will quit the ski team. Like I want to feel useful or like I'm making progress. And I felt like I was kind of dead ending. Like I was qualifying for NCAAs, but not getting to go. Like how, how was I supposed to get better? And so I was like trying to explore all the avenues to, to like feel like I was advancing.
1: How'd that turn out?
0: Um, they had no money. (laughs) And so, I had raced junior nationals because I was still a junior, um, age-wise, to race at like the junior national level. This is
1: biathlon. This is just skiing. Skiing, okay.
0: And had been approached by one of the development coaches for USA Biathlon, and he was like, "Hey, like you're skate skiing really well, which is what they do in biathlon. They don't, they don't. There's two types of skiing: skate and classic. And biathlon only competes skating. It's like a hockey, kind of like a hockey player. Um, Like you're skating really well, like." Have you ever considered like trying biathlon? And I was like, actually, like I have tried biathlon. Um, and basically, I was offered some funding to go to Northern Maine <laughs> of all places, um where the basically the junior team for USA Biathlon was training. So that spring, i I packed up all my stuff, and one of my like, my parents came out and helped me drive back to the Midwest and then drive to Northern Maine. and I moved into a ski lodge with four other girls where they converted one of the office rooms into a bedroom for four of us, like, in a public ski lodge where, like, there was a, you know, like, anyone could walk into during the day type of deal. But it was at the venue where they had, like, a paved roller ski loop, and, like, I lived there and trained there with those women and made the junior national team officially that winter and went to Junior Worlds and um, got named to the senior national team. So, like, my year away from school turned into me not going back to school for four years because all of a sudden I like was on the senior national team. Like I had, I had advanced, like I was hoping to. Um, so why like, why go back to college then?
1: And was that an exciting time for you from an athletic standpoint or because you saw success in it and you were on these national teams, you thought you should stick with it or see how good you could get?
0: Yeah. I think I was really excited. Cause there's like a lot of It's like this novel thing. Like I get to live in the Olympic Training Center and I'm like, I'm training, like I've made it in a way. And that I've made it feeling lasted for probably like six months to a year. And then it felt a lot more like I need to prove myself. I need to prove that I deserve to be on this team. I need to make, you know, I need to make teams internationally because we had a group of women and men that are trying to qualify for like the World Cup team and an Olympic team and a world championship team. And so your goal is to make those teams. And so all of a sudden this like this novel, like I've made it, was like I live in a fishbowl and like I have not proven anything yet. And that kind of between that and being the youngest on the team by a lot at that point in time and not having a development team structure really, um, there was no way for me to transition smoothly from being a junior athlete to being a senior athlete um, without probably going overboard. And given the fact that I'm like – a hungry athlete and need and like feel the need to prove myself from wherever that comes from. Um, like that was a recipe for me to like go way too far in the opposite direction. Um, and with like no oversight on the national team, that's at that point in time, that's kind of what happened is that I accelerated really rapidly for probably another year because my body could handle it. And I was, you know, catching up, catching up, catching up. And then all of a sudden like the wheels just came off. I mean, like one thing at a time kind of came off, but we hit the rails pretty hard.
1: We're going to come back to that. But I want to ask you, how dangerous is it for an athlete, whether it's at the level you were competing at in biathlon or just an age grouper who's trying to improve to feel like they've made it?
0: I mean, I think in anything that's dangerous, like as a coach, for example, I don't think I think it's really dangerous to ever ever feel like I know everything. Because I definitely don't. and if if you have a coach who who does think they know everything and d- don't know where their limits are, that's dangerous. As an athlete, I think thinking that you are owed things or that you you know you deserve x, y, or z is dangerous. It's dangerous for your motivation. Um, it's dangerous probably for your well-being. So it's kind of like trying to balance the like the not knowing your limitations and being willing to test yourself and try things versus, thinking that you're owed something or that you, you've made it. And like, what can you do from here? I think that's a good way to, to lose motivation and not feel the drive to improve. Cause there's always room for like self-improvement, I would say. And that's, I think what, what should, if it doesn't already fuel most of us is kind of like racing against ourselves.
1: Where does that, drive that you described a little while ago come from where you always feel like you should be a little bit better than you are at a given time.
0: I've always been really competitive. I think all my friends would agree with that. I'm like not like sometimes not game night, but like there are certain like things that I'm like I should probably not do cuz I feel like I'm like I'm very competitive. I've got two brothers. And we've like been racing since we could all like walk. And so I think, and I was the kid too, that like if I wasn't beating my brothers, I'd be like, I'm not racing. <laughs> like mid race, be like, I'm not racing. So it started pretty early yeah, on. Yeah, I think it started really early on. And that was just like positively fueled through through being a really athletic kid and doing a lot of sports um, and getting exposure to kind of that over and over again. I wasn't in any like crazy, like year round soccer league or anything like that. and have very supportive parents. Um but I've been like competitively wired since I was really small.
1: Has it gotten you into trouble?
0: I think where it gets you into trouble is like more so if from like an athletic perspective, well, besides like not ruining any friendships, like <laughs> over like, you know, a game of Candyland or something. But I think that it's more dangerous in the sense that I think it can lead, it's our. It's can be a huge strength in something like ultra running, like to be able to push yourself, um, but that can be dangerous too, because maybe that allows you to push yourself past the point of, of an injury or recognizing that something hurts. Or um, I think that also pushes people into the sense of like anxiety or disordered eating or anything of that nature. I think you become a lot more vulnerable mm-hmm. to those kind of little pieces that circle the sports, the sports world pretty pretty hard. I think that's where that becomes dangerous, is that those little things become heightened.
1: I would agree with that. Speaking from my own personal experience, a number of athletes that I've worked with, you've got to know when to pump the brakes a little bit um, because otherwise it can just get the best of you and then you're in a situation that, despite your best intentions, you really didn't want to be in. Yeah,
0: like I used to be an athlete, and this was more so when I was skiing, that like I would get upset if I couldn't train for the day. Like if life got in the way or something came up, Like I would be, I'd be a terrible person to be around um upset. Or if I knew I couldn't train on Thursday, I would try to do t- like Wednesday's training and Thursday's training on Wednesday. Like if I was supposed to train 20 hours that week, I was going to train 20 hours that week type of deal. Um and I'm not that athlete at all anymore. Despite like still being competitive, I've found ways to and I don't know if it's just like acceptance, but I don't I'm okay like taking an unplanned rest day because not because I'm hurt or sick, but because like life got got in the way or the weather like it's smoky right now and like kind of we're playing the day-to-day like how smoky is the air game Mm -hmm. Um, that kind of stuff used like would have like you know me five six eight ten years ago that would have been like not a fun week to be around me but I feel like from the experience of like pushing those boundaries so hard to the point of to the point of breaking to really to the point of really breaking I now, you know, hindsight's always 2020. 20. Like I now because I've accepted that those things happen maybe, I I can make it through like having to take an un, un like an unplanned rest day or week or month or whatever it might be and not I don't like I'm not stressed that I'm like deteriorating as an athlete or I'm not going to beat so and so or whatever it is. I've been able to separate those things out.
1: So is that when it changed for you when you did break as an athlete you alluded to it a few minutes ago? the end of your biathlon career, I think you're trying to make the Olympics in 2014. Long story short, you didn't get there because as you just described earlier, like you kind of went off the rails and came to a screeching halt.
0: Yeah, I fully went off the rails and it was, you know, people talk a lot about overtraining and overtraining is really hard to do. It is, it is like primarily you're over recovered and uh, over recovered, you're under recovered and you've got a lot of other stuff maybe going on. That's, that's adding stress to your life. And it's, it's physical, it's emotional, it's, you know, I was definitely depressed, um, like not in a good spot. Hematologically, like all of a sudden was super anemic. I would never been anemic before. Um, and these kind of things are all, you know, are all linked together. Um, and so my body, like, I completely fell apart and I basically like went back to Bozeman with my tail between my legs. And when my teammates went to the Olympics, like I went back to school. Um, and at that point too, even, I don't think I was ready to accept that because instead of taking like six credits to go back to school, I took 22 credits my f- like first semester back. Because if I was going to be in school, I was going to be in You're school. You're all in, right? I was all in. And so I think I've like slow, like I wasn't ready to meter out immediately, but, you know, 12 months, 18 months after that, um, I think I've slowly been able to develop like a both a, like a healthy regard to training and exercising, like not even, not even training, exercising. I feel like I I have a much healthier relationship with that now. Um, And that has crossed over into other aspects of my life as well.
1: How has that informed your perspective as a coach?
0: When I first started coaching and we talked about this on our run earlier, when I first started coaching, I was terrified that I was going to hurt people, that I was going to miss things and that they were going to be broken because I, because I had been broken. And I think we bring that into anything that we do. You bring your own experience into things. And so my first year of coaching, um, I think I was probably really, really, really conservative with athletes. Um, and I've learned that I can both trust them and trust myself. And I still work. There are some athletes that I'm working with right now that I have worked with since I started coaching, which is really cool um, to have a multi-year relationship with folks. Um, but that those relationships have developed into one where not only do I trust myself to coach them, but I trust them to, to let me know how things are actually going. And because of that, you know, I would say that I'm still, I'm still conservative in a sense, but I also know that my athletes can handle a lot of work as long as there's like a two way street of communication. Um, and so I think that initially coaching I was terrified. Like I didn't want to coach because I was worried I was going to hurt people.
1: Were you missing that communication yourself as an athlete toward the end of your biathlon career?
0: I think that's why things went wrong. Like I I, I was an athlete on the biathlon team who at that point in time with its, with its structure then fell through the cracks. Like there was not a dedicated development team coach. There was not a dedicated, you know, kind of system in place for a young athlete bridging up to the senior, senior level. And now there is, like we have an X team, which is like our juniors transitioning to the senior team type of deal. And there's a dedicated coaching staff to that group of athletes to kind of bring them along. Um, and so not only was there, there was a lack of communication, but i was also in a, on a program that was the same as my teammates who at the time were you know 6 8 years older than me um they they're actually like you know it's kind of funny looking back because in my mind they were so old but they were like 29 or 30 and i was you know f- like fresh out of i'd like was 21 22 um and they had just had more years of training more more years of that workload and and not only was i on the same program maybe as the women but like the men were all, i was like on the program as the as our men's team and there's no cookie cutter way that that works out well. And so I think between a lack of communication and, and clearly the kind of oversight in that, um, but me being willing to like continue to like jump as high as they would ask me to jump um, was like the perfect storm of, you know, a hungry athlete going like very much in the wrong direction.
1: When did you finally get over that hump as a coach, where you weren't worried so much anymore about hurting the athletes that you were working with, and you knew you could give them more than you originally thought they could handle?
0: I think so. I, I coach for CTS, so like Jason Coop is my my coaching mentor. I would say. I tried to say that he was my boss and he didn't like that. And I was like, okay, ringleader, you're our ringleader. And he was like, okay, I can be the ringleader.
1: <laughs> um, I could see Coop saying that.
0: Yeah, so he, um, I like needed a recommendation for something. And I was like, can I say you're my boss? And he's like, I'm, I'm not your boss. I'm like, what are you then? Colleague. Yeah, yeah. but he's like my superior, my like reporting superior. Um, so I think I'm very fortunate that I coach, like instead of me going out on my own, I got to coach with a group of people. I got hired on with a couple of coaches. We went through like a coaching education together with Coop um, to both like kind of make sure we were on a similar kind of like wavelength, but also to catch up our, our coaching colleagues who maybe didn't come from an exercise science background into using the same terminology. And we also do these things. So we, we meet once a week. Like we have a conference call once a week um, to talk about a, a topic, to do an athlete review. And all of a sudden – You know, it was my turn to do an athlete review and I was like sweating through my shirt in my kitchen and actually I was probably like in the hallway in Bellingham, or not in Bellingham, in Vancouver, like outside of our lab, presenting an athlete that I was working with and saying this is this this person, this is what they do, this is their athletic background, this is what we're training for. And then you like present, you know, like you've got training peaks open and we go through what we've been prescribing and what we're planning to prescribe next. Um, And it's not to attack each other. But it's to ask like really like to ask probing questions and to get a better understanding of how each of us coaches, but also to be able to talk through like why you're doing what you're doing. And so after like a year of of that kind of stuff and and realizing that I was like I was okay at this, that I was and and having athletes make it through a season and be happy and excited, I was like okay, like I'm I think more than like learning that I could trust athletes, it was just learning that I that I was that I could trust myself and that I knew what I was doing. Like it's still a continual education process, like you're never done learning as a coach, but I knew what I was doing in the sense that I could like write a plan, communicate appropriately with athletes, um, make changes to a plan, all like the the, the most basic framework of coaching. Because for whatever reason, despite like this being my educational background, I was super hesitant to coach because I was just like, well, what if I'm terrible at it?
1: Why did you ultimately decide to get into it?
0: Um I needed money to pay rent. <laughs> and I was like, I've got time and this is pretty flexible. Um like I applied, like I hadn't wasn't going to do it on my own because I didn't want to do the billing. I'd never get paid. If I coached for myself, I would never get paid because I'd be like, "Oh, you can't pay me this month. Don't worry about it." Or oh, like this person gets a special rate. Like I would I would never make any money. And that's, I knew that, like, for me, I was, like, also going into coaching for the sense that I could, like, grow as a coach, I was going to be fostered along as a coach, and I would have other people doing, like, the insurance and the billing. Um, And so, like, reached out to CTS when they were hiring and was fortunate enough to kind of squeak by in interviews and wasn't a total idiot um, to Coop's questioning, but had, like, had thought about it. I had been, like, told that maybe I should coach. Um, But it basically, like, it was a way for me, I was not an athlete who was coaching to, Pay for my running. I was a graduate student who was coaching to pay my rent, um, and that just kind of has transitioned to where I am now.
1: And now it's how you spend a majority of your working time.
0: Yeah, I would say that I'm a full time coach at this point. I work some odd odd jobs additionally, in part, so that I'm not in the house by myself every day, so that I see other humans. It's important
1: to get out. Speaking <laughs> as someone who is in a similar boat, I mean, I'm out of my own house now for other reasons, but. Stuff like this is good for me because otherwise, I'm just sitting at my desk all day on the phone in front of the computer, oh, yeah. writing schedules. And it really can, as much as I love it, it can drive you mad. Oh,
0: yeah. I like Stephen will come home from school and he'll be like, What did you do today? And I'm like, What do you think I did today? Like, I we didn't need any groceries, so I physically did, and I had a rest day, so I did not leave our apartment. Like, What do you think I did? Like, I need a dog so that I could like, have to go on walks or something. <laughs> like, it's bad. But I do. I I would say that first and foremost, at least from my my taxes standpoint, I I coach full time. Like that is that is clearly where I am making any sort of income. Um, but it like, it's what I like doing with my time. It's been a really fun way to to continue to educate people too. I'm I'm a total science nerd, and so I love getting to break down these like training topics with athletes and answer questions. Um, because I do hope that when I work with an athlete. They eventually can graduate from me, that I can provide them with enough knowledge and insight and trust in their own body and trust that they can listen to their body, that they can eventually like go off on their own if they want. Um, I would say that there are people who I will like, they'll continue to pay me for my friendship and that feels kind of good too. But um, it's definitely coaching has been this thing that I started really hesitantly, um, but has become a more and more satisfying kind of part of what I do.
1: Let's go back to the end of your biathlon career. When did trail and ultra running come into the picture?
0: Yeah, so I went back to college um, once I left the Olympic Training Center. And um, we were, so basically training like the, what we do for cross training in the the summer, because we can't be on snow and you can only roller ski in a circle for so long, um, was to go on long runs and hikes. And so while we were still in Montana, actually, I was like, I'm going to sign up for like the rut. 'Cause the rut was in our backyard. So I was like dabbling in like shorter trail running races because that was a normal Saturday for us. Like, oh, go play in the mountains for four hours. Like, not fast, but like that's that was a normal thing to do.
1: I'm just laughing because the rut is like one of the gnarliest trail races and ultra races in the US, I think. Um uh, coming from California carpet of the yeah. Marin here. It Headlands was like here. my first
0: my first trail race um post like post-biathlon. Um yeah, I was, like, the kid who, like, in cross-country, like, the my PR, like, we raced 4Ks in, in high school. My PR was on our home course, which was on, like, not on a golf course. It was, like, on a really, really rolling, like, hilly ski trail. And that was my 4K PR. It was, like, not on the flat course. It was on, like, this really silly.
1: So you're all about the equalizers. Anything yeah. that's going to kind of bring everything closer to your.
0: Totally, to my actual ability. ability. Um. So running was something that, like, I had a competitive itch to scratch still. Um. And I kind of tended, like, this is where I reached out to David Roach at the time. And I was like, hey, like, I don't know if I'm going to race or not, but like, I've taken, I'd taken like 18 months off post-biathlon at this point. Like, I wasn't allowed to exercise unless a friend invited me to go do something. Like, I was not going for like a 40 minute run by myself.
1: You were in a very deep hole.
0: Yeah, I was in a very deep hole. So it was really nice to realize that like, if the ski conditions were terrible, I didn't have to go skiing. Like, it was also really like a refresher as well. Um... But I reached out to David and I was like, I don't know if I'm gonna race or not. I have no idea what's gonna happen. I have no idea if I wanna be competitive or not. But I need to I need to try this thing to see if it's something that brings me happiness. And so we like put down put together like a really mini little like I raced like I was gonna race the Rut, the I was supposed to race um, Angel Staircase, which got canceled due to wildfire in Washington. So I raced Crystal Mountain Sky Marathon and then Flagstaff Sky Marathon. Like that, that's what I wanted to do. I was like, there are lots of hiking. They're all like um, they' they were all marathons there is the short race at the rut, so they were all a marathon or shorter. so that seemed like a very manageable distance to cover. Um, and I was like, maybe I'll be terrible at it and I won't care. Maybe I'll be terrible at it and I want to get better. Maybe I'll be okay at it and like well and and I'll figure out if it's what I want to do or not.
1: You're pretty open-minded about it. Yeah, that I was thing.
0: super open minded about it. And it turned out that I liked it. It went okay. And I wanted to do more. And at that point in time we were also getting ready to move to Washington and my dad, being my dad, was like, you know, Corey, I think you'd be better if you ran longer. And I was like, Oh, I'm like maybe. He was like, Yeah, I just I get you know, I just feel like, you know, like maybe other people aren't as good if they run longer, but I think you'd be better if you ran longer. And I was like, Oh, that's so Sage insightful. Sage dad advice right that's there. So insightful. And we were moving to the Pacific Northwest, and I was looking for races to do. And Gorge 100K was on my 26th birthday. And I was like, perfect. I can race 62 miles for my 26th birthday. I had, I had not raced over a marathon distance at this point and like told David I was signing up for that. And he was like super supportive and gung-ho, and he's like, maybe we should find a 50K to do before then. So we like moved house, moved to Washington. I ended up signing up for Chuckanut 50K as well. So I did Chuckanut and Gorge, but like that was 2016, and that was like my intro to to ultra running. It was like I found 100K on my birthday, and my dad told me maybe I'd be better if I ran longer. And like they, that whole first year went really well. Like I was fourth at Gorge, right behind Keeley. Um, was had a good day at Chuckanut. And then I won Cayuga 50 mile. It's like my first. It's like the only 50 mile race I feel like I've ever nailed. Was that
1: the national championship at the it time? It was.
0: Yeah. And so I won the US 50 mile national championship on the trail, like six months into my ultra running career, and made the world's team. And like that's how I met Alex Varner and EO and Devin and that whole crew was because of that world's team. So like that's why I knew people moving to the Bay. So it's like this continual like bringing everyone together. But that was like my entrance to. Ultra running was like maybe you should run longer. Oh, and go to Portugal to race world.
1: <laughs> is it safe to say that your relationship at that point with training and racing was in a better spot than it was toward the end of your biathlon career?
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. I think it was just it was one that was much more accepting of kind of where I was at, and I listened to a lot of Harry Potter on tape, which I think was really helpful. I highly recommend if you're in in a rut, um, Harry Potter one through what is it seven books on Audible. It's a pretty good way to get through a lot of running.
1: So I'm not a big Harry Potter fan but why was Harry Potter so instrumental during that time for you? So I
0: I mean I grew up with Harry Potter. Okay. Like I'm like the appropriate age where like they came out when I was 11 type of deal. So it was like I grew up with Harry Potter and so I was like revisiting this thing that I like enjoyed as a kid and brought me happiness and so it was really rainy in the Pacific Northwest too and so I'd go for this like two hour trail run by myself and I could like plug in my iPhone and listen to, you know, Harry Potter fighting someone for two hours in the rain, as opposed to like my other number one training partner, Terry Gross, who like (laughs) doesn't know it, but she's like my biggest training partner.
1: She is the best interviewer that I've ever listened to. So you're speaking my language there with Terry Gross. That's more, that's more my speed than Harry Potter.
0: I've been listening to Terry Gross since I was a kid. My dad would have us listen to her interviews and he's like, if you make it, Terry Gross will interview you. I think my dad has planted a lot of these seeds of like, you've got, you've got to be better. You've got it. Like, and I was like, so Terry Gross, like, that's like. So you're still working towards that? I'm still working towards Terry Gross. I think I had to like write a book or I don't know, like save a baby or something. But yeah. So jumped into that really quickly. Ultra running was this thing that was very different than the training and the mindset I had when I was running. Um, And I wasn't, but at the same time, like my approach to trail and ultra running at that point was like, I am relaxed. I am chill, and if you know me, I'm like I don't have a lot of chill. But I was like, I'm not gonna. I don't care. Was like I think the like the attitude I brought to ultra running. Well, and you
1: didn't have that pressure to at that point anyway. Make a team or nothing else.
0: Yeah, and I think that it was just like that was protective, right? Like if I don't care, I can't get hurt doing right. this. And so I think I brought that into my running when I started ultra running. I was like, well, I don't care what happens. So like, whatever. Like well, that made it easier. And
1: what's also interesting about this is thinking back to what you just described earlier in this conversation about getting into new things and sucking at it. And I mean, you didn't suck at it because you had some pretty good success (laughs) right away, but you weren't experienced. And I mean, getting good at ultra running just takes time. Like you gain experience every time out. So you were definitely in that phase of it as well, which I could see as a huge motivating factor.
0: Yeah, I was definitely learning a lot. I would say that that first year went surprisingly smoothly as opposed to like year and not, not like the portugal worlds that year was not smooth like i was the only woman who finished on the u.s team because it was hor like it was just terrible like the weather was terrible the course was terrible in a good way they like had spaced the water too far apart so we ran out of water for over an hour at one point in time and it was like unseasonably warm for october like it was a weird it was weird but i kind of liked how much it sucked. And then year two and ultra running, like everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Like I had an injury. I like had the worst GI distress of my life. One like eating the nutrition that I've always been able to eat type of deal. Mm-hmm. Like who I was probably just sick and I like did bad things to ferns for a 50K until I finally just stopped eating because I was like, this is not if I eat, <laughs> if I keep eating, this is not gonna get better. Um so year one, smooth. Like, why would I not do these things? Year two was like I have to learn to love this because it's not always easy. It's almost like
1: a sophomore slump kind of.
0: Yeah. Like I think I ran Leadville my second year. That was my first hundred in 2017. Um, And although that was not an easy race by any means because it's Leadville and it it is deceptively hard. I think the altitude is just what makes it difficult. Just from like it—it affects every other system in your body, besides like being at high elevation and feeling like you're at high elevation. Um, Like that was the thing that went best that year, and I think that kind of hooked me on hundreds as well. It was like, okay, I'm—I'm good at suffering, and I'm good at suffering for a long period of time.
1: Have you always been someone who's embraced the suck?
0: Because that's what
1: I'm taking away from this yeah, conversation. When I was
0: first a skier, no. But when my friend Molly joined the ski team my sophomore year of high school, her dad was a big believer in embracing the suck. Um, this guy Roger, and he would take us skiing. I like cried on so many of these skis um, because I was so frustrated that I was so bad at things. Um, but he would like be in the woods, like singing, make it hurt so good to us, like during races. And he would have these talks with us where he'd you know say like, "Okay, we're racing 5Ks on skis," and he would say. You know, everyone hurts. Everyone hurts at kilometer three. There's no way around it. If you go into the race knowing it's going to hurt, you're stronger than like a quarter of the people out there. And, if and you it go, doesn't catch
1: you by surprise. Yeah, and
0: if you go into the race knowing it's going to hurt and you're okay with it, like you're stronger than most of the people out there. And that really, like that, I was latched onto that, this idea that if I knew it was going to hurt and I was like ready for it and I could like revel in it, and embrace it and be like like you know okay like let's do this type of deal like with the pain or with the discomfort that made racing so much easier um and that makes a lot of things in life so much easier but yeah like these like conversations in the truck like driving to ski meets with my friend's dad like i think really like allowed me to tune into to that and i think skiers are just tra- like skiing hurts like you're you're those races are I, I would imagine it's akin to racing like a 10k cross country race. Like it is aerobic, but anaerobic all at the same time You're just
1: on that red line, And you're on
0: that red line the entire time. And skiing has slightly more, I think elevation change um, than, than those cross country races. And so you're actually like, because of that, that dictates some of those like surges, like above lactate threshold. Um, and so you're just like really on the rivet the entire time. And so there's, no, if you, if you can't, be okay with it hurting it's it's really hard to be competitive in that sport and so i think that we've seen a lot of skiers actually do really well in ultra running and i think part of that is that conditioning like courtney DeWalter um stephanie howe they are they are nordic skiers from minnesota um minnesota high school like skiers um garrett heath Was a high school skier Ben True? Yeah, Ben True, exceptionally good. Skied collegiately as well. Mm -hmm. Um, The whole, like, I feel like the whole ski community roots for him at like every single Olympic trials. I love that. Ben, Um, he's got like a cheering, a, a big fandom. Um, but it's, I think we're conditioned to really embrace that.
1: Well, they're hard sports. They take place in harsh environments yep. and there's something about that, that calluses an athlete. So when you put them into that type of situation, it's not foreign to them and it's not something that they fear most of the time.
0: Yeah. so I think that has been something that I've, and I, like, they're like even more extreme than that, like. We had like a few races on skis where it rained, like it was like 38 and raining, and then like that's terrible, like it's not fun. Um, It is not inherently like inherently enjoyable conditions, but I'd be like everyone else thinks this sucks, so I'm gonna like it, and I'm gonna tell like, and I was like I was kind of not mean, but I'd be like, oh yeah, it's really bad out there, guys, and then I'd be like, like like I'm gonna go embrace it. Same with like really hot weather or like really cold weather, I'd be like oh, yeah, guys, it's really rough out there. And I'd be like, it's okay, we got this.
1: I'm laughing because that reminds me of like 2018 Boston Marathon. That's exactly what Des Linden told herself on the bus ride over to the start. Everyone else is hating this right now, and I love it. I happen to have a good race that day, and that's how I was thinking about it. I was like, oh, the worse it is, the better it is for me. But anyone who tells you, you're like, yeah, yeah, it's pretty awful out there. And you're like, you're
0: yeah, like, but I'm going to crush you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that I've, I've had that kind of inherently, like starting out as a skier, and I feel like I bring that into running like that's how I felt about western states two years ago when it was really hot I was like I'm ready for this like I'm ready to like just embrace how terrible it's gonna be and like so I was actually like bummed at UTMB this year because had uh, like several years in a row of like really terrible rain snow cold and I was like bring it on like we're gonna do this and I was honestly because I was puking so much I was kind of happy that the weather was pretty tame but you know you I think it's you can train that for sure you can mentally train yourself to be able to embrace those conditions or it can even be people or whatever it is around you to like, to be able to like embrace whatever it is that, you know, is, is annoying or is a detractor for most other people. You can kind of just accept it. And I think as soon as you do that, it makes racing in those conditions So much easier.
1: I'd say, all in all, it's served you pretty well so far over the course of your entire athletic career.
0: I said the choose crappier races, and I'll be okay. (laughs)
1: Last bit, because I think we both need to have lunch here since we (laughs) have. I
0: think our stomachs are both grumbling. I can
1: hear them both grumbling. I don't know if the mics are picking it up or not, but you are a huge nerd of the sport. You admitted that earlier. In this conversation, I've been fortunate enough to do some pre and post race type of shows with you. What is exciting you about the sport of ultra running right now?
0: Um, as of late, I am really, really, really thrilled with women going really far. And I think there've been like the month of October was really good. Oh, insane. I mean, you've got Magda doing the TRT attempt and just like showing what a badass Chrissy was. You got
1: Maggie at Big's Backyard yep. Ultra. And you've
0: got Camille Heron just destroying 24 hour the 24-hour world championships. And I, I mean, I think women's, I've been excited about women's athletics a lot over the last, you know, year plus anyway with Desi, with Shalane. Like I'm a, like my nerddom goes outside of outside of uh, the trails for sure. I appreciate that. Um, watching like, you know, Bowerman and these groups of women just like really really excel um, but I feel like October is the month of women running long and doing it really well and that has been thrilling to watch
1: I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation thank you so much for the time I told you we were gonna go like maybe 60 minutes and here we are like 90 something minutes later but to be Sorry, fair guys. well all the ultra runners that I've had on I think all of those conversations have been like 80 plus minutes so far so par for the course
0: we're just good at going long
1: another episode in the books thank you so much for listening in what'd you think if you enjoyed this episode please share it on your preferred social media platform and encourage your friends and followers to tune in and subscribe to the show you can also leave a rating and a review on apple podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on it only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me a big thank you to the 37th annual Kaiser Permanente San Francisco Half Marathon, 10K and 5K, for sponsoring this episode. You can run through San Francisco's Golden Gate Park and along the Pacific Ocean on these fast and scenic courses. This event is presented by Pama Kid Runners, and it supports local San Francisco Bay Area community organizations and nonprofits with donations of more than $75,000 per year. So mark your calendars. Race day is February 2nd, 2020. You can register today at GetFitKPSF.com. Use the code ShakeOut5. That's ShakeOut in the number five. And you'll save five bucks on your registration if you sign up before November 30th, 2019. A big shout-out, as always, to my man John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He's my audio ninja for this show. He makes every episode sound clear and amazing. I couldn't do this without him. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas, who handles my sponsorship sales. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys, they help keep this ship afloat. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also conveniently called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that I think you'll enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you.